We are continuing our series here in, um, throughout some of the different Old Testament characters. It's called Legends and Misfits. Thanks, guys. Um, I d- decided not to use the bumper video tonight because it just makes me laugh every time I see it because it's just sort of melodrama. It's like a, a He-Man trailer or something, you know. And uh, anyway, so for all of us, we, we're just going to jump into the, the sermon right out, of, um, uh, right out of the readings. But here we are, uh, um, continuing this thing. We did Abraham, I think uh, Super Bowl Sunday fell on Moses. Is that correct? Oh, we did Joshua. There was one. Of, we did Abraham, we did Joshua. Uh, last week was Moses on Sunday morning. And uh, so tonight we're talking about Joshua and Caleb. Um, so just a little bit of... Um, kind of to set this up a little bit, a few Sundays ago, I was uh, speaking at a church in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And uh, any of you from the area, I know Shamika, you talked to me about, anyone else from kind of that Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania area? Really beautiful area, and, and it was nice, and I went with our good friend Evan Riedahl here, who accompanied me on the trip, and, and it, was an, it was a nice time. But I had the option on Saturday, I, I did a workshop thing uh, for their staff, kind of a seminar for their staff in the morning, and then had something in the evening, and then services the next day on Sunday morning, followed by a Spanish service. So on Saturday afternoon, I had kind of earmarked in my head, like, this is going to be nap time, you know, nap time for Glenn, because it's going to be a full weekend. Uh, But it turned out that there was just so many cool things to see, and they said, hey, do you want to go see some of the historic sites around Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? And, And I said, sure. I mean, I can't turn down historic sites, you know. Um, so we watched this video all about the community. It was really fascinating about uh, Bethlehem Steel and, and the, 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 the amazing sort of rise of that and then the unfortunate demise of that. Um, but then we went around and we saw some of these first sites by the Moravians. And if you know a, a little bit about the Moravians, and I don't know much, but, um, but, but the Moravians came and they established some of these beautiful communities. So there's a couple pictures I wanted you to to just sort of see, here's one of whichever one. You can put up any of them in order. There's that. That's Moravian College. Isn't that nice? And uh, it, I think what's, what's remarkable about this, and Evan, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they had, they had a, a, a men's college, but they also had a women's college, which was maybe the first time that women were receiving education that was on par to a man. Isn't that cool? So the Moravians, here they are coming, and they're, they're establishing this uh, um, colony. And then this is their cemetery, which sounds like, why would you take a picture of a cemetery? But this is the first uh, integrated multiracial burying grounds in America. Now that's pretty cool. So the, you could tell that for the Moravians, their faith really showed up in, in the way that they did stuff. And that's a site, sign that kind of says it. And there's this whole story about, you know, Count Zinzendorf who uh, who comes and he blesses the colonies. He says, this will be called Bethlehem, you know. And so there's a big uh, Christmas star up on the hill. And it's, you know, they call it the Christmas, Christmas city, the Christmas town, something. It's, you know, everybody's got to have a name for their town. But, um, but I thought, you know, how interesting when you can, when you can imagine a place uh, that, that, as far as I know, at the time wasn't occupied and they're, they're, they didn't encounter Native Americans exactly where they settled. And so and so here they are, able to imagine a community and then act out on it, to sort of colonize, in a way, a, a, a place, an area that was blank or empty, a canvas to paint on, and they, they did some good things. But I, I began to think about our situation and how much more difficult it is for us, because if we are called to colonize earth with the culture of heaven, and that is one way to say what our calling is, that if we are called to be the people of God who walk on earth and say, let's 
bring the culture of heaven into this place, into this environment, to colonize earth with the culture of heaven, if we are called to do that, and we are, (laughs) then it's a lot trickier for us because it's not an empty land. It's not an uninhabited place. We are called to walk this out in occupied territory. We are called to be people that are supposed to be bringing a particular culture, announcing the reign of a new king, King Jesus, and we're supposed to be doing all that. The trouble is, this is enemy-occupied territory. This is a world that people think is ruled by someone else. Maybe, ruled, maybe they wouldn't say ruled by Satan, but maybe ruled by humans with power or humans with, uh, with, with um, whatever it is. And so here we are trying to say, all right, how do we live out the Jesus life in your workplace, in your schools, in your homes? How do we begin to have the culture of heaven take over and redeem the the places of the land when there's already people here? And there's people here that live by a different rule. There's people here that follow a different way. This, I think, is a little bit of the situation of Joshua. This is a bit of the story of, of Joshua because it would be wonderful if the, the way this whole promise to Abraham about a promised land, uh, it would be wonderful the way that that unfolded was, hey, Abraham, there's this untapped real estate that nobody's built on. And it's amazing. And so, look, I've preserved it for you. But unfortunately, fortunately, the way the story unfolds is the promised land that's supposed to be theirs, there's people living there. So this is kind of a problem. Now, right away, I know what's happening in your minds. You're thinking, aha, So it seems that there's times when God's people can use God's name to take over stuff that's not theirs. Hmm. What do we do with the book of Joshua? One of the difficult things about treating every section of the Bible the same way is you tend to look for automatic principles. And so you try to find something and say, okay, well, this is it. And so, therefore, this is kind of what we should do as well. And so, if you were to do that, you might read the book of Joshua and you might walk away with this idea that you see God uses violence to accomplish His purposes. And so, therefore, violence must be okay even if we do it in God's name as a nation or as a whatever because, hey, the book of Joshua, right? So, I, I want to caution against that and I want to suggest a different way of thinking about this. I want to suggest to you that that God is like a good parent who starts out with his people in a parent, oh, the way a parent often does with toddlers. Think about what happens when Adam and Eve sin. What does God do? He's there right away. Hey, what happened? What'd you do? And you have this sort of imagined, God sort of imagined being told as this parent that's right there, right after the, the milk spilt and the bowl shattered. Like, hey, what'd you guys do? You ever had that parenting moment? It happens in our house like every hour. It's amazing. We were just talking about how like the house is perfectly clean. Then Sophia comes home from school and within an hour, it's all of a sudden our house is not a house. It's a zoo with, you know, all this, her animals all over it. Anyway, so, so, so God with Adam and Eve is like, hey, what, what'd you do? Think about God with Cain and Abel. God comes to Cain preemptively, right? And says, look, listen, Cain, sin's at the door. Don't do it. This is like a parent saying, don't touch the stove. It's really hot. We say to our two-year-old Jonas, you know, hot Jonas, hot, don't touch, don't touch. This is God saying to Cain, and Cain, don't do it. There's sin at the door, don't do it. But then all of a sudden the story goes on 
and God seems a little bit more sublime, right? You've got Abraham and now instead of God speaking, walking in the garden, you have a God who speaks through visitors. And then as the story goes on, okay, but at least Abraham gets the dialogue with God, but then you get Jacob, who God only appears to Jacob in a dream. Where's the heavy, where's the helicopter parent now? Where are you, God? How come you're not on the scene, like hovering? Because his people are sort of growing up. And then you get to Joseph. And God's interactions with Joseph is even more sublime. He's not speaking directly. He's not correcting. He's not preventing. He's, hope, he's, he's working with Joseph to make sort of wise decisions. I suggest that the story of God working with Israel has to be viewed along a trajectory and not as individual absolute principles. Does that make sense? You can't just take the book of Joshua and say, Aha! God endorses violence to accomplish his means. I suggest that you say, look at the flow of the story. Israel does use violence to to take the land. And by the end of the book, you see the ultimate futility of violence. You sort of see that it doesn't work out so well. By the time you get to Isaiah, Isaiah is rehashing Israel's history. And Isaiah in Isaiah 40 to 55 basically says, look, God's going to have a servant but when he comes, he's going to suffer at the hands of the wicked. What? What about like we're going to take him and we're going to get him and what about all that? And so by the time you get to Jesus and Jesus says, look, 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 look. Love your enemies. You've heard, you know, pers- you know bless those who bless you, but you can persecute those who persecute you. Joshua. But I'm saying to you, love even your... The point is, read the Scripture as a narrative flow. Don't stop too early in the story and say, aha, this is what God's like. Do you see what I'm saying? See the flow of it. Look at the arc of the story. So, these stories, as we're talking about them each week, they're not morality tales. They're not for us to kind of say, aha, here's this sort of absolute abstract kind of thing. We're just going to... And yet, it is part of the Scripture And what does Paul say about the Scripture to Timothy? He says, all Scripture is useful for what? Instruction. The Torah itself, the first five books, is not law. It's teaching. So are we supposed to learn something from this or not? Yes. So here's this this sort of thing we're going to, to, to tread on, is we're going to look at the Joshua story, pick out a few key points in it, moments in the story, and to say, all right, so how is this instructive for us as we see this through the whole arc of the story, see this through Christ. Does that make sense? Look, I know that's a lot more difficult Bible reading work than sort of flipping to your favorite passage and turning it into a refrigerator magnet. I know it is. But this is the book we've been given. It's a book that gives us a story, not a book that gives us one-liners. Okay? So here we are. Joshua 1. After Moses, the Lord's servant, died, the Lord spoke to Moses, uh, excuse me, the Lord spoke to Joshua, Nun's son. He had been Moses' helper. My servant Moses is dead. Now get ready to cross the Jordan with the entire people to the land that I'm giving, going to give to the Israelites. And I'm giving you every place where you set foot exactly as I promised Moses. Take a moment. How many times in those first three verses is the, word, is the name Moses? Four times. 
After Moses, the Lord's servant, died, the Lord spoke to Joshua, Nun's son. He had been Moses' helper, and my servant Moses is dead. And he goes on, Moses. You think Moses was a towering figure in Israel's story at this point? You bet. Sort of larger than life, legendary guy. And God knows that Joshua is probably feeling itty-bitty right now. I can't do this. Moses is mentioned four times in three verses. There's a sense that you get the way that God's talking to Joshua throughout this whole first chapter that he understands you're probably feeling pretty small. You're probably unsure about how you can fill his shoes. But listen to what God says. I'm giving you every place where you set foot exactly as I promised Moses. The rest of the chapter has those famous verses that do make great refrigerator magnets. Be strong and courageous for I am with you, right? These words, these promises. And embedded in this right away, right at the beginning of the story, is God saying, the same God that was with Moses is with you. The question is, do you believe that? The same God that was with Moses is with us. The operative word, I think, in this phrase is the word with. I wonder how many times we go about trying to bring the culture of heaven to say, Lord, let your kingdom come through me and my workplace and the way that I do my job and the way that I treat people. Lord, help me to do this. But how often do we go about that come Monday morning, not thinking with, but thinking for? God, I want to do this for you, right? God, I got to do this for you. For you, and you wonder if that doesn't help the feeling of insecurity. Because you walk out of here and you say, okay, okay, yes, 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 Lord, may your kingdom come through me, Lord, and as we so I'm going to do this, and Lord, I want to do this for you, and Lord, I want to do this for you. And then you kind of walk away and you say, yeah, well, that was lousy. Kind of got upset at the kids, and I didn't treat that client well, and I sort of yelled at the customer, and whoops, that was a bummer. I'll do better, Lord, tomorrow because I'm going to do this for you. And maybe before we try to do anything for Him, we remember that He is with us. That He's with us. That the same God that was with Moses is with not just Joshua, but even now, you. Now that's remarkable. Because you see, we, we say this every week, and I think it's important to, to re- remember this. This isn't just like some cool stories that happened a long time ago. This is your family story. You kind of got grafted into this, so this is now your heritage. It's like me. I grew up in Malaysia. I'm a Malaysian citizen. Three years ago, I became a naturalized U.S. citizen. So I can talk about George Washington and say, our first president. It's my story now. So when you think about God saying to Moses and Joshua, God saying to Joshua, look, I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. Don't freak out. This is your story. That God says even to you now, I'm with you. What's the place, what's the thing in your life that you're worried about, afraid about? I think confession that we do each week is not only about confessing Sin, but I think it's a great place to confess fears. 
to say, you know what, God, I am freaked out about this. Or I'm really, I, I don't know, I think this is going to happen. I, uh, because it, it allows us to say, Same God, same God, same God, same God that was with Moses that led all those people. Same God, he's here right now. Same God. Maybe some of you need to hear that almost prophetically tonight to say, same God. He's with you. He knows how to do this. He's been leading his people. He's leading you. As the story goes on, they enter the land, and, and they do begin to um, figure out how life there is going to be. So Joshua 5 is where we'll pick up the story, verse 10. The Israelites camped at Gil- in Gilgal, and they celebrated Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. Now Passover, of course, is their way of remembering what had just happened 40 years earlier about them leaving Exodus. That's the, that's the feast that began right then and there, and so they're, they're still remembering it even as they get in the land. And on the very next day after Passover, they ate food produced in the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped on the next day when they ate food produced in the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, in case you didn't catch it. And so that year, they ate the crops of the land of Canaan. I'm sorry, what did they eat? Hebrew... Poetry works by saying parallel phrases to kind of underscore the point. And so multiple times you see this, they ate what the land produced. The manna stopped. Oh, and the manna stopped, so they ate what the land produced. Yes. Why is this such a big deal? Well, imagine for a moment that every day for about 40 years or so, you woke up and there was food on the ground. And granted... It was whatchamacallit food. That's what manna literally means. What, what is this? Whatchamacallit. But it was food that fell down from the sky. How many times as parents have you said to your kids, what, do you think that the food's just going to, you know, drop down on your laps? Come on, do some work around here, right? This is kind of God the parent with Israel. Hey, Israel, I saved you. I rescued you. I dropped food from the sky, for goodness sake. But now, you want to eat? Learn how to cultivate the crops. You want to drink? Learn how to maintain a well. What? What? You want to eat? Learn how to raise some livestock. I'll even start you out. Take over the Canaanite stuff. (laughs) Trajectory, trajectory, gets better. This is, think, I mean, think of it. This is kind of like us as parents, you know. And when right now, our big struggle with our kids at home is to help them learn a sense of responsibility for the messes that they make. And it's an ongoing deal because they'll get, as I mentioned to you, a disaster going because of their creative imagination. I'll say, girls, it's time to clean up. What, Dad? What is there to clean up? Uh, I don't know, all those scraps of paper you cut up all over the floor, the bowl of cornflakes you just spilled. Dad, we didn't do that. <laughs> you know? And, you know, 
there's something where, okay, it used to be they'd wake up in the morning on the weekend, Dad, we're hungry. Give us breakfast. We're hungry. And now it's kind of like they know. They can get the shelf, the stuff down from the shelf. That, you know. This is a little bit like what Israel is about to learn. Food used to drop from the sky, and now if you want to eat, you're going to have to learn some responsibility. The lesson here is not just that God is with us, but that God wants us to work with Him. You might say it's kind of two sides of the same coin. So if the first, yeah, God wants us to work with Him. And you could circle the word with again. He's with us. He wants us to work with Him. Join me in this work. Join me in what we're doing here. Do you remember maybe a mountaintop experience when you first came to Christ? Maybe it wasn't when you first came to Christ. Maybe it was like this retreat you went to, marriage retreat, family retreat, youth camp, whatever it was. And you were like, man, this is amazing. Like every prayer you prayed, God was answering. Like even the ones where you showed up at the mall and you're like, God, how about a close spot? There it is. I want to point out that when they got into the promised land, the miraculous food stopped. Some of us sort of think that to walk with Jesus is to have the miraculous every day. When maybe what God wants us to learn is not the miraculous, but the maturity that comes from joining Him in a work. Because it's, it's great to say, oh, this happened, this happened, oh, matter water from the rock, and you should have seen it, it was just awesome. And then one day it stops, and your first question is, God, where are you, God? Why have you, what, what's that, why? And God said, no, it's all good, I'm right here. I just want you to work with me now. Join me in this work. You're not going to go hungry, I'm still with you, but I just want you to learn how to plant stuff. Cultivate, grow, raise, nurture. It applies in so many things in our lives. The things that we're trying to cultivate, the relationships we're trying to nurture, the marriages we're trying to keep healthy, the children we're trying to raise well, the workplace that we're trying to be a good witness in, all of those things take work. What? It takes work. It's probably a big lie that was served up to many of us when we came to Christ. And it was sort of this, just say yes to Jesus and life is going to be awesome. Just say yes to Jesus and everything's going to get better. Your kids will never argue with you. Your spouse will love you. Your bank account will grow bigger. Just say yes to Jesus. None of you doesn't sound like from the silence believe that. Entering the promised land, ironically, is the beginning of how we learn to work with God. It's not the end of our work. It's the beginning of it. It's not the end of laboring. It's actually the beginning of it. But for us as, as, as Christians, we'd say, well, this is a grace-empowered, spirit-filled work. Absolutely, 100%. But it still involves your participation. It still involves it. There's no magic prayer that I can pray to zap you and make you all of a sudden start showing the fruit of the Spirit. It's got to be cultivated. There's no magic sort of thing to kind of say, bam, mature. Nope. You want fruit in the land? 
begin to work with God. Cooperate. I think one of the great questions, and, 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 and I, I didn't come up with this, but there's several people who talk about discipleship stuff. One of the great que- questions that could shape our conversations with one another to help each other is to kind of say, so what do you think the Lord is doing in your life? What do you think God's up to in your life, Brooks? You know, well, I don't know. I think he's this is a, yeah. cool, man. So what, what do you think you need to do to cooperate with him? Bah. I don't know. Was, do I need to cooperate with him? Yes, actually. Oh, well, I, I mean, maybe I should. Do you see how that changes everything? To start to say, what is God? God is with us. Same God with us. But now how do I cooperate with him? How do I respond to him? How do I say, okay, okay yeah, yeah. Dude, those are great questions to ask about your lives. Or how do I cooperate with you? And then as a friend, you could add a third question and say, well, how can we all help you do that? How can we help you do that? My role as a pastor is not to make you mature. It's to say, it's to set the table for you, to lay the groundwork for you, to say, hey, welcome to Canaan. There's some great land here. Would you like to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is already doing in your life? That's what we do. That's what we do for one another. We help each other cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, you got it. The next part of this story that we're going to kind of land on, and there's just two more, is actually about Caleb. Joshua and Caleb, you know, we sort of know this. If you grew up in church, they were... if, If Bible action heroes had collecting cards, you wanted Caleb's. He's a good dude, you know. I mean, this is a guy who's a brave. This was one of the, you know, he and Joshua were two of the spies that said, we can do it, we can take it, we can go, you know. It's why we have the names. I love, my friend Aaron Stern has a great sermon on all the other names of the guys, the spies that day, and how come those names never made it to our day. You know why? Because they were cowards. But we have, we still name our sons Joshua and Caleb because these were good dudes. The story about them is pretty good. So the story in Joshua 14 goes like this. This is an older Caleb, and this is Caleb talking. Verse 10. Now look, the Lord has kept me alive exactly as he promised. It's 45 years since the Lord spoke about this to Moses. It was while Israel was journeying in the desert. Now look. <laughs> Today I'm 85 years old. Now keep in mind, Hebrew ages, a bit of a fluid concept, Okay. I'm just as strong today as I was, just the way the language works. Okay, I'm just, rabbit trail, don't take it, Glenn, don't take it. Okay, I'm just as strong today as I was the day Moses sent me out. The strength that was, my strength then was as my strength is now, whether for war or everyday activities. What do you have in mind, Caleb? So now, give me this highland that the Lord promised me that day. True? The Anakim are there with their large fortified cities. Anakim are legendary giant type figures, not the father of Luke Skywalker. Um, (laughs) Thought you might appreciate it. As you yourself heard that day. But if the Lord is with me, I should be able to remove them exactly as the Lord promised. I mean, imagine this. This is kind of a maybe comedic relief. I mean, that's at least how I imagine this. I'm playing, you know, you got this dude's 85 and... I don't know if people believe what he's saying or not, but he sure believes it. I am just as strong today as I was back then. I'm, uh, not a thing is different about me. 
<laughs> Caleb, I wouldn't go that far. I think a few things different about you. I'm going to take this mountain. <laughs> but you love that about this guy because he seems to n- never quit. I think there's something about this that says God wants us to stay in the story. God wants us to stay in the story. Now I'm, I turn 34 in a few weeks. There you have it. Gasp, sigh, whatever. Yeah, there you go. There it is. And I I can't speak for what it's like to be, obviously, in your 40s, 50s, 60s. But I've got to think there's got to be something inspiring about Caleb that says, who cares about the American dream that says, build in your 20s, climb in your 30s, conquer in your 40s, whatever else in your 50s, and then coast in your 60s and 70s. Get me the yacht, please. Let's go golfing every day. Look, nothing wrong with that. Enjoy your life. You've worked hard. There's Ecclesiastes that says, look, if you can find joy, find it. It's great. But there's something about Caleb's story that says to us, God doesn't want us to check out of the story. God doesn't, God's not finished with you. Our culture has a terrible way of marginalizing people past, quote-unquote, their prime. Of celebrating the young. It's one of the reasons I think we love sports. Because sports allows us to idolize the young and the strong. Now, I'm a huge sports fan. Don't get me wrong. But subliminally, we sort of buy this thing of like, the guys and gals in their 20s, or, or maybe there's the Hollywood thing that, that idolizes youth, and there's a certain sort of ideal age, and it freezes it, and it says, this is it. And anything past this is like, yeah, whatever, sure, man, whatever. But this, these are the people. So you have, you know, whatever magazine's list of top 40, under 40, you know? And you go, oh, wow, those are the people. So what are, what are you supposed to feel like if you're over 40? nothing to do? Should I just like cheer the kids on? You go get them, kids. Sometimes, I bet, because I've heard this, it's easy to feel that way around here. Because this is a young church. A lot of young people. This is a young church. And um, it's easy to sort of feel like, well, what what is my role? I want to say to you, Let's believe God together that there's still mountains to climb. That there's still work to be done. That there's still a place in the story for you. If you stay at this campus, if you go downtown, the last thing I want, because I've heard this from a few few people, so let me just put this to rest. We're We're not moving service to Sunday morning downtown so we could have a young church. Not interested in that. I'm interested in having all the generations there. And I know that means some of you may drive there instead of, Walking there, riding your bicycles there, riding your skateboard there, whatever. (laughs) But that's okay. I also think, because I talk to a lot of young people, that there are a lot of young people who are dying for older people to say, hey, can I buy you coffee? You don't need to say, hey, son, can I be your mentor? 
You, know? you don't need to say that. And, and young people don't need to say, hey, would you be my role model? You don't need to do that. Just, hey, if you're a young person, you could say, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee someday? love to ask you some questions about your family and, and, and your life. Oh, me? I thought I wasn't in the story. No, 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 you're still in the story. I thought I, thought I was your real. No, 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 come on. Can I? So, so young people, be proactive about it. But I think it can work both ways. I think there's, that's what it means to be a family, right? You can kind of be proactive with this. And those of you that have lived longer can say, hey, honey, why don't we invite that couple out to Red Robin after church tonight? Okay. Let's pay for them. They probably don't have any money. You're right. They don't. <laughs> or if, you know, if not a couple, get a, group of, a group of single people. Hey, let's have a group of single people. Just don't try to be matchmaker, you know. That's my job. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do meddle sometimes. Um, but try not to. Okay. But I do have a few success stories. Okay. Uh, <laughs> stay in the story is the point. Culture says you ride this ark and you kind of hit your peak and then it's all downhill. But I think God has a way of saying, I've got room at the table for every person in every generation because you're all part of the story. Because it all matters. And Caleb's saying, you bet I believe. Absolutely I believe that. I'm not done. Let's go take this mountain. Finally, we get to the most famous verse in the whole book of Joshua because this truly is a refrigerator magnet and we had it on my fridge growing up so I know it very well although you may not recognize this translation of it Joshua 24 this is Joshua talking to the people kind of giving them a final charge so now revere the Lord serve him honestly and faithfully Put aside the gods that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates and in the Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, isn't this interesting? Uh, if you're like me, you probably imagine that when they left Egypt, they were all Yahweh worshipers, right? Apparently not. The gods your ancestors worshipped. There's even a lot of reason to sort of suggest that some other slaves fled with them. And so the mixed multitude that's there in Exodus is a mixed multitude as in people who worshipped other gods and were from other tribe, other, sorry, uh, family lines. And so he's saying, okay, set, this is the time. Set it all aside. But if it seems wrong in your opinion to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Choose the gods whom your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But my family and I will serve the Lord. There's so much that could be said about this verse. You could talk about how there's something about our ability to choose. There's something about God's uh, never shying away from giving us, letting us see both options. You could talk about how in the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge and good of, of good and evil is right next to the tree of life. God doesn't hide both options. He says, here it is. Choose. You could talk about how in Deuteronomy he says to them later, uh, right before this, I set before you life and death. I think you should choose this one, but you go ahead and choose. We could talk about all of those things. We could talk about how from a leadership standpoint, Joshua doesn't force the people and manipulate the people. He just says, 
you could choose that. This is what we're going to choose. I think the thing for us as we wrap this up is to say that God wants our total allegiance. God wants our total allegiance. I choose that word on purpose because there are many things that claim our allegiance. An idol is anything that promises to give you something that only God has. <laughs> or only God is, or only God can give. So you may look to something and think, this thing is part of what gives me peace. But the moment you start believing that, it's an idol. Because it's making a claim to give you something that only God has to give. Even in this political season, candidates love to use words that they don't own. There's no human on the planet that can give you hope. There's no human on the planet who can give you freedom. There's no human on the planet who can give you faith. Think for a minute about who you believe has the power to give you those things. And Joshua's words to us are the same. You can serve it if you want. Get all you can out of the God of the Amorites. Sure, they'll make all kinds of claims. They'll make you all kinds of promises. But I'm going to tell you, me and my house, we're serving Yahweh and Him alone. That's it. At the end of the day, that's it. You know that that's... This is one of the reasons why I don't love the language of saying, let's put God first. I don't like the language of that because it sort of subconsciously makes you think that you can put other things second. So long as God's first. So I can love God, but then I can also have these allegiances, and I can love this, and I can be this, and I can do that, and I can pursue this. And I can do... But is that what Joshua is saying? As long as you serve Yahweh first, serve Amorite, the God of the Amorites too. He's not saying that. He's saying, just so you know, Yahweh does not tolerate rival loyalties. Doesn't tolerate it. Doesn't tolerate it. So if you want to move forward as his people, make a decision now. Make a decision now. Who is it? What is it? And let all other idols crumble. Let every other thing that prom makes you promises it can't keep. This is why the prophets in the Old Testament are so dramatic about idols. And they call them deaf and dumb and mute. They're trying to say, wake up. These guys are writing checks they can't cash. These guys are making promises they can't keep. Sound familiar? There's no cause. There's no campaign. There's no person there's no job, there's no career, there's no love, there's no thing, there's no country, there's no place that can give you only what Yahweh has in His power to give. Choose today if you believe it or not. But don't give me this, I'm putting God first, but then I also want to do this. It doesn't work. If you want to be kingdom bearers that live in this country that's occupied territory and announce Jesus' reign then it means denouncing 
other people's reigns. To announce Jesus' reign is to denounce other rulers. And to say, I don't buy that. I don't buy that, what they're selling. I don't buy this. I don't buy, I'm like, no. It's his reign, and I'm following him. Joshua's own name means Yahweh saves. Jesus' name is that, Yeshua, the God who saves. There's a very real way that you can see Jesus as drawing this whole story of Joshua as Jesus does with so many of the stories, drawing the story of Joshua into himself and saying, I'm the one leading the way. I'm the one giving you victory. I'm the one, God himself. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples before he leaves? He says, go into all the world, right? Make because what? I am with you always. He's with you. Let's pray tonight. Maybe in some ways the last point is really the starting point for us tonight. That... Um, before we get on with knowing that God is with us and before we get on with learning to work with God and before we get on to staying in the story and all of that, maybe we got to start by saying, God, what are the rival loyalties in my heart? What's pulling me? For all of us, for me, for you, for all of us. To say, Jesus, you be the only king. You be the only God that has our unquestioned, complete, and total allegiance. We don't belong to anyone else, any other name, any other flag, any other cause, any other thing. We belong to Jesus and His name. God, thank You that You are with us. Thank You that when we leave from this place, we go with You you with us, us with you. As we go t tomorrow to work, and to our homes and our schools, there's land that we want to bring the culture of heaven into. There are places where we want to let heaven occupy and invade the earth. There's places, there's relationships, there's things that we want to see, Lord. The ground being taken, being redeemed, being reclaimed. God, teach us to trust that you with us. Teach us to work with you. Teach us to stay in the story. Teach us to surrender our hearts every day to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everybody said, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.